Hello, it's John and Sally from True Crime Investigators UK and welcome everyone to this, the third and final episode of the Pottery Cottage Murders series. Last time we heard about the sad and tragic discoveries made by police officers who entered Pottery Cottage. In this episode we hear from Chris McCarthy, one of the officers pursuing Billy Hughes and his hostage, Jill Moran. We speak to an eyewitness from Rayno in Cheshire, where the police pursuit comes to its conclusion. And finally, John Field shares his thoughts of revisiting Pottery Cottage many years later. So let's hear from Chris McCarthy. When were you next aware of Billy Hughes and, and where was he? Well, it was about, if I remember correctly, about a week later when we got a call from one of the neighbours of Pottery Cottage. I think his name may have been Mr Frost and I think he was responsible for towing Mrs Moran's car out of her garden in order to get it going. But again, the alarm went up from one of the neighbours, I believe it was the Frosts, and troops who got together at Chesterfield Police Station. I went up first with uh, Graham Raisin, Detective Sergeant Raisin, and we waited for other officers to attend. We were told to stop at the Highwayman Public House and not approach Pottery Cottage at that time. So we went up there and waited for numerous other officers to attend, such as Bill Miller, Barbara Hassel, Fran Muldoon, numerous uniformed officers, and the divisional superintendent, Mr Hogger, attended and was in charge at that particular time. So he, on arriving, dispatched myself, Bill Miller, Bob Hassel, Fran Muldoon, and I believe there was one other officer, I can't think who it was now, but he dispatched us on foot down to Pottery Cottage to investigate what the situation was. So we walked the 300 yards downhill in the dead of night, absolute dark up there, very, very dark indeed, no, no street lights. So we've approached the cottage, entered the front drive, and quickly found that the mother-in-law of Mrs Moran was dead in the back garden, blood covered and covered with snow virtually. At this stage, Bill Miller, who was the detective sergeant at that particular point, has dispatched the youngest officer there, being myself, to run back to the uh, highwayman and inform the divisional subcommander, uh, Tommy Hunger. So that's exactly what I've done. I've turned around and run the 300 yards back up in the dead of night, thinking, heart in my mouth, so to speak, got back to the, the troops up there approached Mr Hogger, told him exactly what had happened. And by that time, the regional crime squad car had arrived. Detective Inspector Jeff Cooper, Detective Sergeant Brian Slack and Detective Constable Bob Meek. So they were beckoned by the uh, superintendent. They were filled in as to what happened. And I just jumped in the car with them, very surprised that nobody stopped me. So we took off then along the 619 towards Chatsworth Baslow, and was that the direction that Billy had left Pottery Cottage before the officers had arrived? Yes, uh, that information came from Mr Frost. He reminded me that he appeared back at the scene as we were all getting together at the highwayman and said that what had happened was that they'd been approached by Mrs Moran to assist her to get her car moving and he'd gone along with his car and towed it out of the grounds down the hill towards Baslow to get bump started. And they'd been successful in doing that, and that's when he'd turned around, come back, and raised the alarm, basically. So you and the three regional crime squad officers were all in one car and yes. went in search of Billy Hughes? And in the direction in which we believed he'd gone. 
basically. And there was some suggestion that he may have been heading towards Blackpool. I think he'd certainly got family there and one thing and another. And that was the idea, I believe, at the time, that he may have been heading towards Blackpool. So, yeah, we, we went in the same direction that Mr Frost had taken, through Baslow, through Carver on the A623, up through Stony Middleton. And before reaching Tideswell, we came up behind a car described as that of Mrs Moran's, which was, I believe, it was a brown Chrysler. Can't remember the model or anything like that, but I believe it may well have been a brown Chrysler. And we came up behind a brown Chrysler on the road going towards Tidesville. Now, Brian Slack knew the roads up there very well. He's, he was from B Division and he was a native of, of that area, so he knew the roads very, very well. And we came up behind this Chrysler. We didn't know the registered number or anything like that, but we did believe it could well be the car that we were after. So Brian eventually overtook it very quickly because it was fluctuating with its speed. It was dropping right down and at times then really racing away, which obviously drew our attention to it in the first place. Brian got past it, shot ahead and pulled up a good, probably half mile in front on the straight road, which leads up to Tideswell Crossroads. So at Tideswell Crossroads, we've all jumped out of the car to flag the Chrysler down. So as the Chrysler's coming towards us, it's becoming more and more obvious that he's not going to stop when we're all waving to stop the vehicle and he's just come straight at us and we've all finished up on the grass verge, him racing off past us up towards um, Peak Forest. So we jump back in the car, give chase again towards Peak Forest itself and we come to what I, what I must say is that all the way through, once once we discovered that this may well be the vehicle and was obviously the vehicle then, is that Jeff Cooper is giving commentary to uh, which is going through to headquarters at that particular time, saying exactly what had happened, but getting no reply whatsoever. The communications were non-existent as far as we were concerned. We learned afterwards that everything was getting through and that the commentary was was being picked up, but we didn't know that. So when we got to Sparrow Pit on that 623, there's a very, very bad left-hand bend there, and we took the opportunity to slow down sufficiently enough to kick Bob Meek out of the vehicle to make contact with headquarters at the pub there, which was known as the Wanted Inn. So we lost Bob there, so that left three of us in the car. Then we go downhill then towards um, the junction at the bottom of that hill, which left for Dove Halls, right for Chapel. Well, that is the A6. So we turned right off the A623 onto the A6 towards Chapel, which was probably only about a mile, mile and a half down the road. So just having turned right there, we were uh, come up behind him again and put a little bit of pressure on him, obviously trying to get past him or whatever. And he lost control of the car and hit a dry stone wall, if I remember right, on the near side, on the left. So we pull up very, very quickly, all three jump out, race towards the car, hoping that he may be unconscious or anything. He did go a good bang into a dry stone wall and we feared for her as well. But as we approached the car, we could see that he was holding around the throat with a, a knife at her throat and holding an axe, I believe, in the other hand and telling us to fuck off backwards, get back there or I'll rip her throat out. Words to that effect, certainly threatening the fact is good killer, he got nothing to lose and one thing and another. At this stage, of course, we only knew that there had been one death back at Pottery Cottage. And, to, and not the four? Not all the family. We didn't know about all the family at that stage. I mean, Bob Assel and Bill Miller, Fran Muldoon had all entered the property, obviously in, in my absence, 
and found what they found. But going back to the story at the scene with Billy Hughes, he was very, very aggressive, swearing, threatening, and basically the decision was made by Jeff Cooper, the DI at the scene, that he insisted on taking our car, wanting our car. And Jeff knew that at this stage he had got some communication from another source to say that got um, a Range Rover, traffic Range Rover, backed up around the corner that Hughes obviously couldn't see. So Jeff made a decision to give him the Morris car that we were in, the Morris Marine, I think it was. They took off in that, Billy Hughes and Mrs Moran. He ripped her across the road or along the side of the road and into the car and we stood back off it, waited for them to drive off and then beckoned the Range Rover around the corner and basically continued the chase. Chris, you talk about this very matter-of-factly, but it must have been harrowing. Oh, yeah. But you've already been to the cottage. You then go with the regional crime squad officers. You come up behind a car, which may or may not be Billy Hughes and Jill Moran, and then you try to stop it. You have that whole thing about this guy's not going to stop and you all have to leap out of the way. And then you get into a further pursuit Mm. where... He loses it, loses the car, crashes into the wall, and you've got that whole altercation. Mm. And amongst all of this, I mean, your heart must have been racing. Oh, very much so. As a young officer of probably about 25 years at the time, you could probably handle it to a certain extent at that. But yes, I, I, I don't deny the fact that it was a very nervous situation. I mean, we didn't have any weapons. We didn't have any guns. We didn't have any sprays. We didn't have anything. We were CID officers. We didn't carry staffs. We didn't carry hasps or anything like that. We attacked hoping that we could overpower Hughes or indeed hoping that he might be unconscious. And, and he you, wasn't. And your priority is the safety of... Of Jill Moran, who really was most upset, obviously, and it was pitiful to hear her screams, to be quite honest. It, I'll never forget those. And Jeff was more concerned about that than anything else, you know, and thought that it was worth giving the car away because we knew we'd got, you know, we're going to be in the same position, nothing worse than we were before. So he made the decision based on that, and that's why we followed on from there. And the commentary obviously continued. And so by now, you and the other officers were in the traffic car? Yes, with in the, the traffic Range Rover. The traffic man, I don't know who it was. I don't know who it was to this day, to be quite honest. He was driving, Jeff was in the front of myself, and Brian Slack then were in the back. Bob Meek, of course, was left at the wanted in at Sparrow Pit. We went back for him at the end of the day, but... But yes, so we continue and being in the same position and, you know, through the countryside and heading where, what destination, we didn't know. When you're surrounded with other blokes as well, other officers, it gives you the confidence, you know, you're not, not pretending that you're not a little bit frightened at times and one thing and another, but it does give you that confidence to plough on, don't you? you know, and that's exactly what we did. So assuming that you caught up with them again and pursued them? yes. Well, we didn't, actually. We kept behind the vehicle, which was fluctuating again with its speed. It'd slow right down and there'd be an axe come out the window and it'd rattle it around, or the knife would come out. It'd go down to 20 miles an hour and be swaying across the road so we couldn't pass him, or then he'd shoot off at 70-odd, 80 miles an hour, depending on, on the conditions of the road. And it was getting very, very rural by that time. And you've still got all this horrendous weather, the the, the snow and... Yeah, I mean, the roads weren't impassable by that time. It had snowed, you know, for a good week or more, but they'd done a good job of clearing the roads. 
but he's making a cross country for somewhere and we're not knowing where. But Jeff, of course, is still continuing to make the commentary and unbeknown to us, they're still picking it up. And we understood afterwards that Derbyshire Police had made contact with Cheshire Police and set up a roadblock at Reno, which they could obviously see the direction in which we were going and, and set that up accordingly. So that is really the next part of the story. The roadblock set up by Cheshire Police at Reno. I couldn't tell you exactly where it was. It was quite a narrow road. There was a bus, a single-decker bus, if I remember correctly, on the near side of the road. And as he's gone past the bus, he's gone straight through another wall. So we're obviously in the same position. And again, myself, Jeff, Brian. And I, I can't speak for the driver. I don't know what happened to him, the traffic driver. But again, we make it to Beeline on foot to the Morris car, which has crashed into this wall. And by this time, it is in a small village. It's not as rural as the first crash. Right. So we, and it's pitch black again. And so we approach the vehicle. We're in exactly the same position. What we didn't know that in the first crash, Hughes had hit the wall that hard that it trapped his feet under the pedals of the car when it had buckled and lost his shoes when he ripped Jill Moran out of the vehicle across into our vehicle. So when he had driven the Morris, he'd got no footwear on at all. So he's crashed the car, he's got no footwear on, we're in Reno and we run towards the vehicle. It's exactly the same position. He's still conscious, she's still conscious and screaming for her life and Hughes is shrieking, get back, I'll effing kill her, etc, etc. And it's exactly the same position that we're in. But although we'd be surrounded by, we didn't know at that time, but very, very quickly we were surrounded, obviously, by some Cheshire officers that were there that were very close to the scene and then obviously set up the roadblock. And Jeff had said to uh, Billy Hughes, remember his words, he says, come on, Hughes, you've had a good run, give yourself up. But he, he was, there was no way he was going to do that. And it was at that stage, or very shortly afterwards, while we were around the car, myself, Brian and Jeff Cooper, that it's obvious that... Pete Howes turned up. He was the chief inspector from Bakewell, I believe, at the time. And he took control of the situation, being the highest-ranking officer there. Did you back off from the car then? Well, Pete put a bit of a barrier between everybody and the car and took up the negotiation himself. We weren't far away, obviously, because it may be that we'd have to rush the car. But Peter Howes took up the conversation with Hughes and Hughes was basically saying that he wanted to leave the scene, he wanted to drive away from the scene, he wanted a police car to drive away and he wanted a checkered banded hat, police hat, some cigarettes and some size 8 shoes. So Pete comes back to us about 10 yards away, 15 yards away or whatever it was and said, look, who's got size 8 shoes? So nobody said anything. I had got size 8 shoes and I wasn't going to say anything. And we left it at that. Pete returns back to Billy Hughes and further conversation and one thing and another. And then he returns. He says, look, has anybody, what size are yours, Chris? I says, uh, eight. And he just goes, come on. So I gave him my shoes. They were reluctantly. Not, reluct, very reluctantly. Being as it's minus whatever. Exactly. And, it, and it's snowing. It's wet through. Basically, I gave the shoes to Peter and he walked away with them. And the plan was like, they'd get him out of the car and then they'd make the arrest. 
And by that time, of course, they'd got two officers up there, Nichols and Frank Pell, Alan Nichols, who'd come, and they were uh, armed. They'd got guns at the scene then. So it seems like the plan was to contain him near the car, let him think that he was getting his own way, i.e. he got your shoes and, mm. and whatever else he wanted. Yes. And then the hope was that he would get out of the car, Jill Moran could be rescued and Billy Hughes could be apprehended. That, that's exactly what the plan was as far as I understood it. And yes, it was intended to lure him out of the car with the cigarettes, the shoes or whatever, get him out of the car away from Jill Moran. But it never happened that way. Because he was never going to give her it was, up. He was it? never going to give her up, no. no. And he basically left the vehicle with her. And at that stage, we were pushed a little bit further back and the two men went in with the firearms. And I can't describe that, what happened there, because we weren't privy to that exact, you know, right at the end there. But as soon as the shooting started, we, we ran in, removed Hughes from the car, and Jill Moran from the other side of the car. Jill Moran was placed into an ambulance and driven straight off to hospital. And Billy Hughes lay dead at the side of the Morris car. Having been shot by those two officers? Yes, yes, yes. That basically was the end of it, as far as I remember. And we slowly made our way back to Chesterfield after that, if I remember correctly, picking Bob Meek up at the Wanted Inn at Sparapit on the way. I'm going to ask you this, Chris. How do you deal with something like that? I know it's a, I know it's a long time ago, and as you've explained, you know you were you were a young man. Mm. But but how do you deal with something that is when you tell the story, it sounds so frightening. I don't disagree. It was very frightening. It made my life very exciting for that one particular night, and so early in service. I mean, I got four and a half years service in, and uh, I probably got a stiff neck for about a week after that. I remember getting home at five o'clock in the morning and my wife opening the door. She wasn't too happy about me walking in at five o'clock in the morning. And I was back at work for nine o'clock to make full statements, you know, and Mr Mitchell was at Chesterfield CID when we got there. He was the uh, assistant chief, wasn't Assistant he? chief constable, yes, at the time. Yeah, it was very frightening. It was certainly probably the highlight of my career when I think back of 40 years but certainly the most exciting night of of my career on the police force. And then you've got to do that quick turnaround. I don't think people appreciate that sometimes that you're involved in a really serious incident it lasts long into the to the night early hours of the mm. morning mm. and then within hours you're up and back at the police station. Mm. I don't, it's not a schedule thing. It's something as important as that. They'd want to regroup as soon as they could have, you know, as soon as they'd given the men some sort of a rest. And that's exactly what we do. And then we all met again very quickly afterwards at Chesterfield CID. And that's, of course, when the incident room was set up, which was initially set up in actual fact, at the Highwayman pub where all the bedrooms are now. But they used to be, it used to be a barn, I think. And I think they set up the incident room initially there in the barn and then it eventually finished up back at Chesterfield police station I think and you continued on the inquiry yeah I know that some people will think that once an incident like that's over an escaped prisoner has now been found and as it is he's been shot and killed and you then have the carnage that's gone off at Pottery Cottage but you've managed to get Jill Moran 
uh, safe and yes, and and as well as she could possibly be given the circumstances of the last few days. And I think some people think that that's when it finishes. Well, it doesn't, does it? Because there's so much work that needs to be done That's right. by officers. That's right. I mean, I think the incident ran for several weeks after the, after the murders. And as I said, I, I think they, it, it ran for several weeks at the Highwayman pub. And I think it was then transferred eventually back down to Chesterfield in a smaller version while further inquiries were made. Yes, with his family, with the prison... I mean, he'd stolen the knife from the prison while he was working in the canteen. I think they were aware that a knife had been stolen, Mm -hmm. but it was never found. And obviously he did very well to secrete it on his person on the day that he was brought to Chesterfield because it would no doubt be searched thoroughly, but not thoroughly enough by the looks of it, on the day that he cut the warders' throats, yeah. I mean, I saw Polaroid photographs of the warders. You would never... Ever believe that those men could have lived? Would survive? Yeah, honestly, I've seen the photographs. Have you seen and, the gaping yeah. wounds? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, how uh, on earth they survived? I do not know. You'll I never really know, do will not you? know. No, really don't. But um, I know they both had emergency surgery at Chesterfield yes. World Hospital. Whatever intervention they had there clearly saved their lives. Yes, definitely. Most definitely. What a harrowing experience for them when you talk about us. We weren't injured or anything, you know, but those two chaps, they suffered severe wounds as a result Mm. in his desperation to escape. And now, all these years later, do you ever think about that incident or or revisit it? (laughs) I'm very often reminded about it. I drive past it, certainly on a weekly basis. Well, thank you for speaking to us today. Not it's, at all. It's been been a really good insight into what actually happened on that horrific time. And you know, I, I always th- when I think about these things, I think that that your hearts don't just go out to Jill Moran and what she lost and her family. But and this is always controversial to say. I also think about Billy Hughes's family because yes. Because they weren't responsible for any of the carnage. And certainly while we've been doing our podcast, what we've found is that it's not just the victims and the victims' family that suffer, and for generations on, but also the the suspects' family or the perpetrators' families because they're not responsible for their family member and the horrendous things that they've been... capable of and responsible for. So, John, that really comes to the conclusion of those tragic events that all started back in August of 1976. The story is absolutely horrendous, isn't it, from start to finish, really, and something we've not experienced, anything as dramatic as this, which all started, as you say, back in Chesterfield in 1976. And that subsequently led to the charging of Billy Hughes with those two serious offences, the serious assault on the young man, the rape of the young lady, and that led to his remanding custody. And that really should have been the end of it at that stage, shouldn't it? He should have gone to trial and be dealt with by the courts and nothing else further should have happened, but that wasn't the case. All those numerous trips for his appearances at Chesterfield Magistrates Court gave him a familiarity with the route which no doubt then 
put the seed of the escape into his mind. He did subsequently escape, but not before he'd seriously injured those two prison officers. Took the taxi and then crashed it and then ended up in severe weather conditions up on the moors at the back of Chatsworth. And like all the things we speak about and when we investigate, most major disasters, incidents, all start from little bits that come together. If the weather hadn't been bad, he wouldn't have crashed the car possibly. He wouldn't have gone on the moor, he wouldn't be at Pottery Cottage. Who knows what his intentions were, we don't know. Clearly he had a mindset to escape all costs because of his actions with the prison officers but these events unfolded and they are what they are that's right yeah and then we've got the whole events of the things that happen between Wednesday the 12th of January and Friday the 14th and the family's attitude towards Billy and how they've really tried to keep him sweet for want of a better word thinking that if they go along with him everything will turn out fine but then there's the dash from the from Pottery Cottage and the police pursuit and the crash into Reno and subsequently Jill is rescued and Billy is shot dead. I mean when you think about these events I mean we've been interviewing people and talking about it for for some considerable time there's nobody can really say how they would react to all these individual items that have taken place, particularly the family at Pottery Cottage. People will sit there and say, well, they should have done this, they should have done that. But nobody knows until they're actually in that situation what's the best thing to do. And, of course, they thought he would leave and they would recover and carry on. Nobody, I don't think, would ever envisage that the ultimate events at that cottage and the murders of those people would have happened and why have they happened and just thinking about those two officers who were on the the street at reno frank pell who we know we have experience of frank pell and also alan nichols and they are the two officers that shot billy dead and when i think about all of those things that we've just talked about and we've traveled the route that billy would have gone we've visited the place where he dropped off the officers and the taxi driver we've been to pottery cottage we've been to the highwaymen during the course of the research for this podcast there's one place that we haven't been and that's Rayno. i mean we've lived in derbyshire we're born and bred in this county There's not many places that we've not been to. However, both of us had never been to Reno. It's not the natural route that we would take to the northwest of England to go to Manchester or towards the M6. It is a route that is available, obviously. But it's a bit more off the beaten track, isn't it? And it's country winding lanes up through the hills, which is very beautiful and scenic, but it's not the natural route. And that is why both of us have never been there. So I think the next thing that we need to do is, as we say put our feet on the street and visit Reno. I know because it's been mentioned a lot in the research that we've done, there's a pub called the Robin Hood and I think any investigation or any enquiries really ought to start in the local pub. We need to go back to our roots, which is bog-standard police work, visit the scene, talk to the people and obtain a picture of what happened and that is basic police work and that's what we should do. Absolutely. Get the car keys. Right, Sally and I are in the village of Reno, which is between Whaley Bridge 
in Derbyshire and Macclesfield in Cheshire. And we've made some inquiries at the local pub and roundabout and spoke to various people. And we've actually made contact with a gentleman who, on the night in question in January 1977, actually witnessed quite a lot of what happened in Reno. And I think it started while you were in the Robin Hood pump. That's right, yes. Which is like, from where we stood, it's 100 yards up the road. And... What did it actually happen? What drew your attention to something happening? The police cars pulling up probably outside the pub. And the blue lights flashing. Yeah, because they was lined up all the way up the road with police cars. Right. What had followed the... Oh, there's a car coming. We'll just hang on a second. And this, not busy road, is it? But it, going back to 77... It's not busy at night. At night times, that's right. So any, any activity, blue lights would draw attention yeah, to everybody, yeah. wouldn't it? So having seen the police cars... What did you do? Did you come out? Well, I just asked somebody what was going on and they explained what, what had happened up, you know, further up the road at Pottery Cottage. I just went home to tell my wife to lock up the doors in case, you know, don't open the door at all if anybody knocks at the door. Not to let them in? Not, yeah. As we're looking down from the Robin Hood pub direction, we're on... Stocks Lane. Stocks Lane, the, the, and then this is the junction of Chapel Lane, yeah, is it? Yeah, And we're looking at, from a little side road, onto the main road, and when you walked down here, there was a police officer yeah, blocking the road. As he, he, yeah, he really was just stood there, and just, he asked me what I was doing, where I was going. So I just said, I was just going home. And I said, what's going to happen if he gets away? And he said, he won't get away from here. Right. Those were the exact words. Yeah. So as you walked down, could you see could what had see, happened? I could see, well, I could see the ch- shadow of him in, in the car. And, and that had crashed into the wall on the yeah. right-hand side? Yeah. Who was in the car, could you see? There was two people, obviously, Billy Hughes and Jill Moran. And what was happening in the car? Uh, they were just, that's all I saw, just, they were just sat there. And did you see any weapons? I think I did. What did you see? I think it, it was a blade of some sort. Yeah, and what was he doing? They were just sat doing nothing at that right. time. And were the police, police surrounding around the car? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they kept going up and obviously talking to him. And so having seen that, you went down the uh, little side road where we stood here yeah. and saw your wife, and then did you come back? I come back and stood just around the corner there. Right, and um, was there one or two people? There was, there was quite a few people, actually. Yeah, and what happened for the when you came back? Nothing for quite a bit, and then all of a sudden he got out of the car, thought he was going somewhere, and obviously tried to get back in again, and that, that's when they shot him. And did you see them actually shoot? Not actually, but... You heard the gunshots? Yeah, heard the gunshots, yeah. And after that, then, it was yeah. it was finished? Yeah, the, like I say, the lights come on. Yeah, I think they've got a Range Rover with what they used in those days. They've got like a telescopic sight yeah. for lighting up road accidents and these sort of yeah. events. So basically then, that was it and everybody it. went home. Yeah. And did they use a bus to block the road yeah, at this the, point? Yeah, there was a bus across the road, yeah. And that was stopping him going through. Yeah. And on the night, um, you know, from what we've uh, researched, it was horrendous weather with lots of snow. The roads were clear, but there was snow, obviously, where the play was gone through and shoves it to the side of the road. Like big drifts yeah, or... Yeah. Uh, there's ba- usually quite a big, a lot of snow here. Yeah. So that was the ideal point to stop yeah, him, really. Yeah. Prior to it culminating in what happened, were the police armed at that time when it first happened? I don't know. But did they ask people with guns? I know they were knocking on doors asking for guns. Like shotguns yeah, or anybody yeah. that could help. Yeah, anybody who got a shotgun. shotgun. I think one or two people said they hadn't got one, so they probably hadn't got a license. So it was like a siege standoff situation yeah, yeah. until eventually, I mean, we know what happened then that the police did arrive with some guns, and because the situation deteriorated, they had to shoot him as as you heard. Yeah. And how many shots did you hear? There was either two or three. 
What's been the effect on the village after that? Bear in mind, it's 77. A lot, a lot of people don't even remember it. No, new people come, mm, don't yeah. they? But on the pub wall, there's a, an yeah. article from the newspaper, isn't yeah, there? Yeah. The memory's still there, yeah. isn't it, in yeah. the village? Oh, yeah. And obviously you remember it well. Was it presumably quite scary on the night? Yeah, it was a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it's so unusual for something like that to happen in, in a village. It's been really interesting talking to you because initially we couldn't actually work out where the bus was or where the car was and now you've stood here and explained to us because we always say we like to put our feet on the street and actually go to the places where events happen and it all becomes clear now doesn't it it makes it makes the words that we've heard and read actually come to life because now we're stood in the spot where you were stood on the night and where you could see the car and also the bus, and looking back up the road, you could also see the pub yeah. where you'd come from. Yeah, that's... Oh, just to say thank you so much for meeting us today and talking to us and adding the story at this end of the uh, incident that took place, isn't it, Sally? And we're very grateful, thank all you. Right, you're all right. I think we needed that visit to Reno, didn't we? Because, well, for two reasons, really. One, it's a beautiful little Cheshire village and it was very nice to visit but on the other hand it's where these events all came to their conclusion and the effect that that had on the people in that village I mean it is and it was our first visit as we we said earlier we'd not been before and we were welcomed by many of the local residents who we met and it is a a lovely place and the effect upon the villagers we actually had a walk around the village didn't we and highlighted a a few of the places that were a prominent part of where the police chase came to an end we saw the site because the the post office that was there is not there anymore so we saw the site of the post office which was where the bus was put across the road. We saw that. We saw the wall where Billy Hughes crashed into the wall. And then we also saw the place on the side of the road where a lot of people were watching the events unfold, including that eyewitness that we've just spoken to. And then further up the road, you've got the Robin Hood pub. So again, I know we always say it, putting your feet on the streets, but you get a picture and puts it all into context and we can see actually where these events concluded. I mean, to say it was 45 years ago, nothing's changed, has it, in that immediate locality. The pub is exactly where it was, the road is the same, some of the houses, and as you say, the post office has changed. But basically, the road was the same as when Billy Hughes drove down on that last day. But you think on, John, when we actually went there and we were walking around the village and we spoke to quite a few people, everybody knew what we were talking about. They were either there themselves or they've got relatives that were there at the time. But not one person said, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately we walked into the pub on that visit. We walked in and just introduced ourselves. And when we looked round the pub and spoke to the landlady, on the wall is a newspaper article in a frame to do with that incident. All these years later, it was on the wall. Although she hadn't been there that long, it was still talked about, she said, in the pub regularly. And the villagers talk about it and had a massive effect on that small village. Absolutely, and that just goes to show that it's not just the people that are directly involved, so Jill Moran and her family. I think we ought to also have some time to think about Billy Hughes's family. They're not responsible for the atrocities that 
he committed. And I think you ought to give some thought to them. And also the police officers, we've heard how they were affected and still think about it even to this day. I mean, the aftermath of this incident, as we just said, goes back 45 years and still being felt by many people. And these are the ones we've spoke to. There's some that we haven't purposefully spoken to, isn't there? We didn't want to involve immediate family to, to open up old wounds. But the ones on the night and the leading up to this event, we know that you know many of them you could see in the faces, couldn't you, were still sad and affecting them and they were thinking about it and couldn't not think about it it was so horrific and that is a powerful force isn't it that that one man caused all this trouble and affected so many lives even to the present day yeah and if you remember another person that we spoke to was the scenes of crime officer and he actually took the photographs inside pottery cottage and subsequently attended the post-mortem of uh, billy hughes so he has seen the very tragic end of, of all of these events and he obviously has very vivid recollections of, of that evening. And I do remember him saying to us, he was actually off work on the Friday, the January the 14th. I think he got sciatica and he was, he was off work sick, but he was called out and he went to do his job in those circumstances. I mean, one of the nice things was the more of the police and the civilian staff like the scenes of crime officer and others there was great respect wasn't there for the senior police officer at Chesterfield and they spoke very fondly of him and clearly had respect for him and and that team spirit came through didn't it this was a completely unusual incident wasn't it the whole thing there's not many police officers experienced anything like this in its intensity its ferocity the the murders that were committed, they all pulled together to try their best to bring this to a safe and satisfactory conclusion, which sadly, eventually, it was concluded, wasn't it? But Billy Hughes had done what he'd done. Yeah, and if we think about what happened to Billy Hughes afterwards, there was plans to bury him at the cemetery in Boythorpe, because if you remember, that's where he was living with his current girlfriend. But there was protests from the locals that they didn't want him there so that never actually happened and subsequently he was cremated at a place just outside Chesterfield Brimington crematorium and I can understand to a certain extent why there was that protest against burying him amongst the community where he'd caused such devastation I mean it must have been well we know from newspaper reports and the people we spoke to, people's uh, tempers and uh, feelings were running very high, weren't they? Because Understandably so. Understandably so. Because news had spread about what Hughes had done. Many people knew the family at Pottery Cottage. You know, it was a close-knit area. And it's quite certain that they pose no threat to Billy Hughes at all. They tried to pacify him and go along with him, hoping he would leave. They never tried to attack or resist anything. And people knew those facts and that influenced how their feelings ran, isn't it, in the in the Chesterfield area? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And certainly for the officers who shot Billy Hughes, Frank Peller we've mentioned, and also Alan Nichols, Frank Peller's never discussed the events 
of that time publicly. But as for Alan Nichols, there is actually a memorial at the reception of Derbyshire Police Headquarters to Alan Nichols for his bravery on that night. And we've covered all the events and what happened. Was there anything good that ever came of this, do you think? Well, I'm hoping that if there are any lessons learnt, that that's lessons for the police and it's lessons for the prison service and it's lessons in communication and how prisoners are dealt with, how they're assessed. And I'm sure that progress has been made over the last 45 years in those areas. I mean, there was a, an inquiry into the prison handling of this incident, wasn't there? Clearly, there was areas that were lacking because they knew a knife was missing and never found it. And of course, he managed to smuggle it out. You know, the knock-on effect is that that would be tightened up and I hope, although there is prison escapes, even to this very day, isn't there? You can never stop everything. Procedures tightened up. And of course now, as you mentioned early on in this podcast, the technology's improved, hasn't it? A lot of these visits there, they come out of prison are now done by Zoom or some technology into the court that restricts the chances they've got of escape. Yeah, and as we round up our thoughts on this i just want to go back to john field and what he had to say to us about many years later him visiting pottery cottage and the circumstances that they were and he told us that story many many years later late 80s i would imagine i went to a party at eastmore to this house and it was a guy who worked at Ashgate Hospice who worked with my wife when she worked there and she says oh we've been invited to a party at Eastmore we turn up and it's Pottery Cottage really? I, obviously not it wasn't under that name when it got and I'm thinking hmm we'll see anyway I walked in and I didn't recognise it. it nothing came to me at all we sat there we're talking we're having a drink and having a laugh and this and the other it's nice Anyway, the guy, I can't remember the guy's name. And he says, oh, the food's ready. You go through that door there. And I suddenly looked up and I thought, ha, I remember that door. Through that door, there should be a kitchen sink. And they said, and we open the door and we go through and there is a kitchen sink there. And this room was letting the same. And the airs on the back of my neck stood up. And I can remember from the night that they were there, when I went through that door, at the side of the sink, there was a calendar. I can't remember everything that was on the calendar, but it was one of the, it was obviously a calendar with quotes and things on. And every one of these quotes was like, turn the other cheek, only do unto others what you would do unto them. And I thought, that's what they think in life and look what they've got. So that was the calendar that belonged to... Jill Moran. Jill and yeah. Richard, yeah, Moran. Richard Moran. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, if that's their attitude towards... Life, you can see, you can, you can yeah. see you how can they see, you can have see dealt what, with what had happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah they can... thought they were going to come out the other side. You know, if they if they treated him right and did what he wanted and this that, and the other and what have you, then everything would be fine. He would go, and then life would somehow get back to normal. Yeah. And sadly, it didn't turn out. Like didn't that. turn out like that at all. Well, John, thank you very much for speaking to us about about your recollections of of the man that was Billy Hughes and your involvement with him. That's not a problem. 
So a very sad episode in the lives of many. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank everybody who took part in the podcast. We've had a lot of support, a lot of people giving a lot of time with our inquiries and pointing us in the right direction and assisting people to come and speak to us. And as people can appreciate, we've kept this podcast to the main events, the main facts, and like any story, around it and behind it is is a vast amount of information, but we've kept it focused, haven't we, Sally? Yeah, and concise. And I think if people want to go and have a look at our website, truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk, what you will find on every case that we do up to press there is additional information there's a website narrative that gives further detail there's also maps to put the areas that we're talking about into context and there's also photographs so we hope when you listen to the podcast and the additional information will will give you a overview of the locations the remoteness and the general background which will complement the actual podcast that's the idea isn't it yeah absolutely well now we've come to the conclusion on this podcast as always we are looking for other cases to investigate and review and the popularity of the podcast is self-generating isn't it sally we've got that many people talking to us and and suggesting things but we've got a couple of cases that we we're sort of leading towards our cases come to us in in all different ways the authors of books or things that we're personally aware of but yes as you allude to john certainly when we were having our walk around Rayner lots of people came to talk to us and highlighted a number of cases with us which gives you some idea of the interest around the podcast and the reporting that we do so we have got a few cases in mind all vying for our attention and we are doing research on all of the cases that were mentioned to us simultaneously so you'll have to find out which one pops to the top From Carrot Cruncher Media, our editors are Angelica Dabbs and Ed Allen, and our executive producer is Pete Allen.